ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Court Squash Podcast with me as ever is Christopher Sackley and Sure Crawford and we have Jay Haycox who is the host of the Squash Tours Podcast and he's a squash coach, former top 50 player in the world and a squash coach to Squash Ed in Greenwich, Connecticut. Jamie, thanks a million for coming on the show, how are you doing man? Absolute pleasure, yeah, nice to, uh, nice to see you guys and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Love the tash, <laughs> it's a beauty. <laughs> Yeah, as I said, it's uh, it's become, I'm getting quite attached to it. So um, I should have should have shaved it off a couple of days ago, but yeah, keep it going for now and uh, see. It's all right with the mask as well. It doesn't scare the kids too much. So. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Ember, <laughs> Love it. yeah, good to good to have another uh, fellow new new podcaster on. Really shows the the camaraderie in the podcasting game, and just wanted to uh, shout out our own Stuart Crawford here who. Earlier this week, uh, I, I I didn't even realize he did this until I saw it on Twitter. But he told Jerry Gibson that um, he might have posted the wrong file, and Jerry Jerry said thanks. And so it's just you know shows the sportsmanship going on in this uh, podcast. <laughs> where you know we're teaming up. He actually he sent me a message on Facebook. He said, "Oh, thanks for the heads up." And I looked at it. I was like, oh, "She's like, I, I can't take credit for this." So there you go. Cheers, Stuart. Yeah. I, I was a bit better than the um, the an- the anchorman scene where the, uh, <laughs> the team's getting the fight. Anyway, exactly. The I think I think Stewart's got the the 2020 uh, most sportsmanlike podcaster wrapped up with that one. I started listening to it. So it was the episode with uh, Jesse Engelbrecht, and I think I've listened to every one of Jerry's podcasts. And they're, I mean, they're pretty pretty good at the best of times. Um, but I'm thinking, I'm sure I've heard Jesse talk about this, and it's. He's talking about being stuck in South Africa. I'm like, geez, that's a long time to be stuck in South Africa because I knew he was back there at the start of lockdown. <laughs> and then I, I suddenly realized it dawns on me that this was his previous appearance, which was recorded back in May. Um, yeah. He obviously hadn't realized, so he'd uploaded the, the wrong file, but it's all good we, now. You've got to be careful. Yeah, when, when I was chatting to Rob, we, uh, I paused it and we, we, sort of, we ended up talking for about another hour. And uh, when I listened back, I was like, yeah, I definitely need to make sure some of that stuff doesn't go, <laughs> doesn't go out. <laughs> we, don't, we both had a couple more beers by that stage as well. So, yeah, yeah, make sure that doesn't get out. <laughs> yeah, Arthur's our chief editor, so it's all on him. <laughs> yeah, he, does no li- he does like to stitch you up just in, just in case you think you've said something off the record and don't take it for granted with him. <laughs> stop, just stop listening, man. I just throw it out there. <laughs> Looking very professional there with the headphones on, Arthur. Yeah, yeah, well, they're the only ones I have. <laughs> so, whether I'm cycling on the bike, I have these big puppies in my ear, and I'm walking down the street. I need to get with it. Actually, quite a story to when I got these, but I don't really think now is the time. <laughs> but maybe, uh, maybe it's a story for the Squash Tourist podcast. Could be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, listen, I, I check my email every day. I'm like. <laughs> no, got it again. <laughs> Plenty more weeks. Plenty more yeah. weeks to go. So, I mean, I know you've you've shared the story of of how you started the podcast, and we think it's a pretty good story. And if you want to maybe sort of give us a quick little insight into that, and then you know your relationship with Rob Owen, who's your most recent guest. Yeah, um, I guess it's well, it started in lockdown. Initially, I was just going back through some some old pictures and uh, of you know times on tour and whatever and uh, so just sort of reposted a few of those 
um, and then from there, some some of them ended up sort of turning into like into a mini sort of blog, I suppose, about the the uh, you know some of the tournaments I've been to and the situations and that I found myself in and other people and things like that. Um, and then yeah, in terms of moving on to the podcast, uh, I just thought that. There's, there was quite a good reaction, well, not a huge reaction, but there was a, certainly a, a few people found some of the sort of blog posts quite entertaining. Um, and, uh, you know, I just thought there's, there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of so many stories out there, you know, we all know, like we, we played a lot of tournaments together. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's just some great stuff out there. And I just thought it, was, it, it might be quite interesting to, to, to people. So then, in terms of the podcast, uh, yeah, my one of the best mates, Chris Tresswell, um, we, we lived together for, I think we said on the pod, but like far too long for two adult males, pretty much. But we, uh, yeah, we, we lived together for almost, well, over 10 years. Yeah, probably maybe like even like 12 years. Uh, so like the whole way through my career, pretty much. And, and certainly through his, uh, he stopped a bit before me. But uh, he, yeah, he's just a, just a hilarious character. And he probably, yeah, he doesn't, he's not the most open guy. So he doesn't always... He, a lot of people might it might know him reasonably well or have seen him at tournaments and they wouldn't really get that so uh yeah the first one with him I, it's just it was like having a phone call really and I was I didn't put too much thought into it um but yeah it was, I put it out and uh it, well he and quite a few of the other close friends really really enjoyed it and found it entertaining so you know putting it out to sort of 10 people really and this, they found it quite interesting and a few other people expressed I had a few other people in mind and they were keen to do it so that's that's sort of where it started really yeah, there was a there was a great story with Chris Truswell in there about you boys heading down to France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just absolutely shambolic. But that's what I, I quite enjoy. My favourite podcast really uh, the, the '90s football one called Quickly Kevin Will He Score, uh, and then there's a, a lockdown parenting podcast with Josh Widdicombe and, and Rob Beckett, and both of those there's sort of similarities in that a lot of it is shambolic you know it's that uh you know it's those situations especially in 90s football there was some you know some real world-class players but the, the sort of professionalism off the pitch was uh you know there was, it was just not what it is now and there was money coming into the game whatever and i always find that quite interesting so and, and as i said we, we know what it's like on tour you know there's uh, a lot of those a lot of things like that go on where you know sometimes without even mean for it to be unprofessional you look back at it and you're like what what was I thinking or you know what how, how I ended up in this position so yeah that's that's sort of the inspiration really there's there's one of the other thing that made me um maybe maybe think about doing the podcast as well and it was when I went to uh probably my one of my last tournaments but I went to Canada for uh Chris on there this to to PEI and uh and I stayed with so this was like, I was like 36 at the time and uh, travelled over there from the US and my billet picked me up, a guy called Lester Jinx. I don't know if you know him, Chris. Oh yeah, legend. Yeah, they're uh, quite a big Great family. Kind of. yeah. Anyway, we, we, he picked me up and uh, I turned up late, whatever, he picked me up and sort of got in the car, you know, and how many times, I must have done this hundreds of times, meeting a new person, meeting a billet or whatever. And uh, first thing, so we just sat in the car and he's like, ah, oh, so Jamie, you know, it's nice to meet you, you know, 36 years old, like, what's, everyone's got a story, what's yours, and just sort of threw it out, out there, and uh, we had a really good chat all the way home, and, and that was a bit of a, yeah, that was sort of a bit of a, I don't know about inspiration, but just, just got me thinking, like, yeah, the, you know, there are people, there are so many different narratives out there with different players, and, and you know, I don't know, I just thought there was some, uh, some value in, in putting my, my 
experiences across and uh and if it you know makes keeps my mates entertained and uh they, they think it's all right then yeah that's sort of work for me really so that's i was about to say if you like shambolic podcasts you should feel right at home here so <laughs> <laughs> and yeah we're not under the illusion we're not you know we're not professionals and like yeah learning learning to edit it and adding sort of little jingles and stuff it's all uh yeah like jerry jerry asked me what equipment i had and i was like I use my girlfriend's laptop and that's it. I haven't got a microphone. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, that's it. It's all, it's all smoke and, whist- uh, smoke and uh, mirrors the rest of it. Um, so if it comes across professional, then, then I'll take that as a compliment, from, certainly from Jerry. So, yeah, he's yeah. the guru, the podfather. Yeah. <laughs> the podfather, yeah. yeah was, I was, uh, was talking to uh, Robert McDavid, who uh, I've known since uh, back in the day when he was at Rochester and told him you, you were coming on today because he said uh, we were talking about someone and he, and he said, you know, he's been listening to the pod and he liked it. And I told him you were coming on. He said, oh, that's awesome. I've been listening to his as well. So shout out, Robert, one of one of each of our probably 20 listeners right there. So, <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, he's a big supporter of both pods. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was, I was saying how it's it's I've listened to – I listened to a few years now and I love like, and we've had some similar guests where like, we know, you know, my brother came on, obviously I know like everything about him and it's kind of fun having that dynamic. And then I've also had a lot of fun learning from, you know, like Stevie Richardson, who I never, never knew yeah. and, and Stu Davenport, like just these awesome characters from around the world. Right. Which, which is similar to, your experience of going to these places yeah. and meeting those characters um, in some funny situations. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, more content out there, the better, really. I don't see why. Yeah, it doesn't need to be competitive. Like, it's, it's great to hear. It's great to hear, you know, I love, love watching the day in the life of the top players and seeing what they're doing. But I think it's, yeah, that, like Jerry mentioned as well, but the more, yeah, the more the better, really. The more, the more media out there, uh, I think, can only be a good thing, really. Um, I know you mentioned you, you asked about my relationship with Rob, which I didn't really answer. But um, he, so yeah, I got I got introduced to him through a friend called John Tate, uh, who's a, a Birmingham Uni squash coach, and he he'd been coaching at the club that Rob works uh, that Rob plays at uh, West Warwick's in Solihull. So that was in probably around 20, 2011, I think. Um, and I think we played a league match where I, I actually played against John, and uh, and he brought Rob along, and. Uh, yeah, I'd obviously heard a lot in the West Midlands. Like Rob's, you know, a pretty well-known character from his. You know, he's obviously a very good player, and uh, certainly got there's a, there's hundreds of stories. I mean, barely touched on on touched scratch the surface with uh, with my pod, but uh, yeah, it's just so many stories out there. So I'd, I'd heard a lot about him, and it was yeah, quite it was really interesting to have him there. And he watched me play John, and he came up came up off. Uh, I came off afterwards, and he's pretty much like deconstructed my game there and then, and. Uh, and yeah, it was just you know, like you can tell from the podcast, but it, you know when he talks, you uh, he, it's intense, but you you listen. So from yeah, that was it. From there, then he offered to uh, to give me a session, or just to go over and get on court with him, and sort of from there really. And yeah, we, we got on really well. From you know, I, I really appreciate it. it was refreshing to hear hear his thoughts on on my squash, and he wasn't really coaching anyone else. I think maybe Chris Ryder as well at the time. We just we met him at the same time. And so yeah, he wasn't coaching anyone else. He'd not, he'd not really been in, involved in squash at all. Uh, his son Josh was about ten years old at the time, and he'd just started playing. So uh, he was sort of just getting back into squash because Josh was getting involved. And yeah, and it sort of went from there really. And we I loved being on call with him, and you know we 
we go on court and then he'd tend to the bar afterwards and he'd uh, he, he'd force as many beers as he could down down me and uh, we went out for some nice lunches and it just sort of stemmed from there really and then I think then I started trying to get a few of the other guys like I was I was living with like Trustwell and Joel Hines and started to get them to come over and they yeah went down the same route of getting deconstructed and broken down to to get built back up again. <laughs> That's one of the things that comes across really well in the, the two episodes you've done with him is just how he builds that relationship with his players away from the court as well. And like you say, he takes players out for dinner, takes them up to the bar, and he's really interested in getting to know them as people and developing yeah. that relationship. And I, I would imagine, apart from obviously being very knowledgeable about the te- technical and tactical side of the game, that's one of the areas that he seems to have a real knack for. Yeah, def- yeah, he's so hospitable. You know, he's all straight. He'd get us, get us back to his for lunch. His wife, Alison, who's lovely, would prepare us like lovely, healthy lunches. And uh, and then, uh, which we, something we love was uh, we'd be up, we'd sit next to him in his office, which was uh, so he he'd get back at sort of one o'clock and or we get back from the club and then he he does his racing. Uh, and then the racing starting in the UK. He did at the time. Uh, so then he'd be in his office and betting on sort of it well all the races and any cricket that's going on around the world and it's it's incredible it's fascinating just to sit next to him being being his office it's so intense there's probably there's a race almost like every five minutes and (laughs) he's he's involved in one way or another and it's like in in run in race betting so just the intense i mean i would leave at like four o'clock and i'd I'd have another session over over at a different club at four o'clock and I just, I remember just driving down and he's, he's laying away from his house and I'm just like absolutely sh- exhausted, shattered, mentally, just, just broken pretty much. And sometimes we'd have, we'd have a bet and try and copy his bets as well, um, which worked for, worked for some guys better than others. But um, yeah, it was uh, just a great experience really to just to spend time with him. And, you know, we don't sometimes then go and watch, watch Rod Martin and 90 squash in, in the lounge and <laughs> it was uh, just yeah great days really really uh, really fun fun times and uh, yeah it was uh, it was really really good for, for our squash I think as well really knowledgeable like say just to spend time with him and see that intensity. He seems to be uh, just I, I only gather this just from the conversation you boys had on, on the podcast but Super, like a little old school in the, in the sense that he's not interested in algorithms. Like he needs to see it, he needs to feel the result or understand. Like he has a really good comprehension of who he's backing or where he's putting his money and and, and what have you. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that you know I think he said in the in the podcast, but that definitely translates over to to squash. And yeah, he's you know you see I've seen him with other players they'll they'll walk on and you know with a cold ball and they'll hit a ball and he'll just be on at them straight away from from that first shot it's like like wrist position or whatever or footwork or and it's you know like probably us guys were a bit guilty of you know going on you know as as you do and you you start gradually warming up and and you know his his attention's to, to detail there and just being yeah you know, used to drive him mad if we weren't you know hitting the ball properly from the first shot really or if we weren't you know moving our feet when when we're on court with him you know he was he always used to crap me up and he'd be like look, look at the state if I can do it you can like, i'm twenty i'm twenty plus stone i'm 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 bouncing on my toes why can't you do it and you know, that sort of thing it just it really uh yeah it it, it inspired me a lot being on with him being on one to one is great because he's uh he gets pretty competitive as well and uh and he just he's just got a knack of it for me it really just helps just I was probably quite hard on myself, but he would, and he would, he'd be hard, but he'd be quite cheeky as well. Like if he feeds someone that's, t- if you can't get it back, he'd be like, oh, I can go a bit easier if you want, or he's just got a good way to, 
to push you really and uh and you almost want to like prove him wrong sometimes and like you know get him making errors on his boast so you so you'll snap a rack in half and <laughs> that sort of <laughs> yeah he was obviously a big influence in your career certainly in the i don't know if you break it into two halves um but you certainly had a really good patch probably around just after the time you started working with him you won some you had a good run in south america i remember Got a couple of big juicy W's. Got the ranking right up there. I don't know if you're. Are you officially retired from the tour? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm still on the rankings, but uh, and to be honest, I would if there was a tournament in New York or something like that. I'd, I would uh, back permitting. I'd, I'd put my name in, but um, yeah, no, I'm not not training. I'm not training much, but still play. I still enjoy playing. I play, played like this morning. I play about once a week, twice a week. There's some. There's lots of guys around here, so. Yeah, you know, play with Cameron Pilly a bit and Lyle Fuller. There's, there's plenty of guys who are keen to just come down and have a game. So um, yeah, it's just it's just more for exercise really at uh, this point. But yeah, you know, if, if I was injury free, then I, I, I wouldn't wouldn't rule out playing, trying to sneak in an event if I could. But um, yeah, going back to uh, sort of when I was training full time, I had it had a good really good. A group of friends uh, who I was at university with, who you guys obviously know, like Steve Coppinger, Johnny Harford, Trustwell, uh, Joel Hines, Phil Nightingale. So yeah, that was out of that out of that group. Um, we all like one time or another went on to to play PSA, and we sort of played semi professional, I guess, at university where we were playing leagues and things outside of uh, outside of university. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the first few years it was it was I said in the podcast I think that the first few years when I look back now like I was pretty close just didn't really know what to you know what I needed to do individually to to get the best out of myself and I think that's, it's, it's pretty hard I think you guys know what your thoughts are but you almost feel like you have to go through that like trial and error type period um just to yeah. see what works you know what works physically in terms of training like you're overtraining you're not doing enough and back then I was I was living with um First year I lived with Trustwell, but I was also living with some university friends who were not squash players. And in, it was a great, great fun, but it wasn't particularly a professional environment. So I wasn't, at that stage, I was nowhere near fit enough. I was just you know, a, a, an okay squash player, but I was, wasn't anywhere near, I couldn't call myself an athlete. So um, yeah, that, those, those first few years, and it was quite, you know, without any sort of financial backing, it was pretty tough because it was always juggling coaching and uh and you know probably over overplaying leagues and stuff like that so it's that that's the, at that stage it was uh just yeah not professional enough really but that was not always through like my own choice some of it's just you know as you guys will know financially in england it's uh it's pretty tough when you're out there on your own you, you haven't, if you haven't got a sponsor and or whatever you haven't got any any backing it's uh you know you've got to you've got to pay your way if you 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 got rent you got bills you got uh transport obviously to tournaments so um that was a sort of constant battle and then I think what uh what made a big difference there was well partly partly me and Rob obviously and uh you know just upping that that intensity in the training becoming a lot more professional having a having a real structured environment where even if the session wasn't structured it was still there it was a group and it was competitive and Rob was there to you know to to hammer on to us whatever we needed to work on individually but also I had a I had some financial sponsorship as well at that stage from uh, a really, really good friend called Oliver Fencher, who I got to know through some Coldfield squash club. So uh, yeah, around that time, he, yeah, he was, he was great. He offered me some, uh, some, let's say financial sponsorship to, to go towards my expenses and stuff. And then we all sort of talked about, 
I felt I had at the time was about 9,500 in the world and thought I could, you know, have that potential to get, to get better than that. But as I say, I was, I was doing too much. I was coaching and uh, not really committing to training. So that, that certainly helped like combined with, with Rob, just being able to, you know, be a bit more selective about the coaching that I was doing and, and play, to playing too many leagues and just putting that, putting that time and effort into, uh, into training. And it also helped being able to play some of the bigger events as well. And, and like I say, go to those tournaments in South America, which, before that, I probably played more tournaments in, in Europe. Um, so yeah, it was uh, that was definitely I'd say you know the financial sponsorship, meeting Rob, and just getting a better a better environment made made such a big difference to uh, to my like level and stuff for sure. I'd say even just the ability to recover in between sessions and after, as opposed to yeah. you know just, you know banging out four or five lessons or yeah. having two or three hours to a league match and coming back at two in the morning. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. For 50 yeah. quid. <laughs> yeah, it's, you, know, you look back on that. But I know in, in some ways, I feel like players who haven't got that, well, the, the very good players, they don't, you know, they don't need it and they don't miss it. But some players down the rankings, you know, I think that, that, that formative experience there is, is huge, isn't it? You know, you know yeah. I mean, we've we played each other, haven't we, Arthur and, and Stu, in those, in those leagues. And, you know, you, it's... Doggy dog, isn't it? And you know, you every night, every night you're given a piece of yourself, aren't you? And you know, every t- team or every team manager wants 100 percent of of you, or, you know, on that <laughs> night. So, uh, which is not easy. You know, you can't play no. best every every time, can you? No. So, but it does put it does put some pressure on. And you know, you those long long drives back from uh, from league where you've, you've either played, I don't know, maybe played badly or you've just lost narrowly. Like you've you certainly got. A couple of hours in the car to uh, on the train or how to get back to to analyze it and and really I guess work out well decide whether you want it whether how bad you want it um, so in some ways you know it's it, it really does help help mold you as well but I would and I feel some players could especially at the moment now that isn't going on they might miss that that competitive side of you know really like putting yourself out there and yeah. you know seeing seeing where the uh, how the cookie crumbles and what you know what how you are under pressure and stuff so. Yeah, I always felt that those that league was all, that those years were almost like an apprenticeship because there's all these like great ex professionals that are still playing like great squash like your Mark Cairns's, your Peter Marshalls, and I mean they're they're on the higher end of the spectrum, but some class players, yeah, <clears throat> they were good days, tough but good. Yeah. yeah, I think there's also an element of when you when you haven't really been a top ranked junior, you're just happy that you're professional squash player and you're playing PSA yeah. events and you're you're being invited yeah. to play these league matches and being paid like whether it is 50 quid or whatever you're like when you're just at a uni you're almost like I can't believe I'm actually like being paid for this and you're obviously ambitious and you want to improve but I definitely think early on there is a year or two where you're just so like I can't believe I'm doing what I love and I've managed yeah. to find a way to make this passion my yeah. life uh, and then it's only really when you get into it and probably after the first couple of years where you're like, well, if I'm going to do this and I clearly are committed to it, I might as well find a way to make it work and get the most out of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, of the four of us, Chris probably had the most successful junior career, I would imagine. And he was the only one that didn't play PSA. So I think certainly from my perspective, I, I couldn't, if you'd asked me at 17 or 18, what do you want to do? I would have said play PSA. And if you'd asked me, do you think that's ever going to happen? I would have said probably not. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You go to uni, you get your degree, and then you're like, "Shit, maybe I am good enough. Maybe I can give this a go." And you try it for a year or two, and it goes okay, and then you continue. And yeah, it's a strange, strange 
situation at the start where you obviously do want to be professional and take it seriously and improve as much as you can. But like you say, Jamie, you don't actually know enough to, to do that in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, if you're, not, if you're not in that, you know, you haven't got that support network of a national federation or whatever, it's, yeah, it's, it's you left to your own device. And m most people haven't got that, really, unless they're very, very, very good, especially in England. Um, so, yeah, that was never never really a, an, op an option. But, um, like, yeah, very similar to you there, Stuart. When I was 18, I simply wasn't, you know, I would have loved to, if you said you're going to play squash, and if you said you're going to get top 50 in the world, I'd, I'd have thought I'd, like, that's, you know, probably why I did get to top 50 because I'd have been happy with that. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, that was always, I always loved that, everything that goes with it, you know, it's, and the traveling, the going to finding obscure little gigs that are going on in places that you're at. And yeah, just, that was, uh, that's, that's sort of a, where it all comes from, really, the whole squash tourist idea that, and I think squash, I've heard the term squash tourist used before and, and, and it can be quite a derogatory term that like people who just turn up and they lose first round and they go and have a holiday. And so, yeah, I guess from, you know, from the top players, they put, maybe that's what they perceive of it. But I think there's, you know, there's a, you can get a, a bit of a, a happy medium. And, you know, I wouldn't want to, if, if you said to me, you could get 10 places higher, but you're not going to have had any of these experiences, then I, I wouldn't, have, you know, I'd be, I'd be happy with my lot, to be honest. No beers, so, no beers, Jamie. But you get ten <laughs> places higher. No, <laughs> got to take I back all that. the beers. <laughs> no I'm interested where that threshold is. Like, what would you sacrifice your entire life on, on your entire life on tour with no beer, no alcohol, no nights out, no nothing? What is the minimum expectation you have in terms of rankings or titles? Ten, top ten, sure. Right. Because <laughs> at least top ten, you. you you know, you should be making some sort of money from that. Whereas at 20 in the world, I know too many people who have been 20 in the world and still have to retire for financial reasons. So 20 is not good enough. <laughs> that seems like a reasonable sacrifice if you're going to make top 10, I guess. Yeah. I mean, most of those, I don't get as many that, that sacrifice the beers, though. So it's, I guess they've just got the talent, the talent more talent. <laughs> It is nice that it all goes together well, though. Even in even in coaching, right? We get to um, get to do some fun stuff and still still get to oh, yeah. live it a little bit, see some good places, and almost a bit better when you're coaching because you're uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting your expenses covered and uh, you're actually staying in a hotel rather than on someone's floor <laughs> <laughs> in a tent just in the rain. I'm just thinking, I sacrificed the beers and didn't get any of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I remember last year. Yeah. You're, uh, you're dry. Eighteen years, I'm counting. Almost nineteen, actually. 19. Well, you have one or two blips now, big fella. Minor, minor blips. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say blips, but it's probably the wrong term. It's funny you say about the whole trial and error thing. I, I look back at that as well and think because there was so much trial and error. By the time you get to the end of it, you've learned so much because you've. You've made so many mistakes along yeah. the way, but eventually you get a little sparkles of where you got it right. I've always sort of found it be interesting to hear your take that because of that trial and error, you have a, a huge database to extract information from when you when you're teaching. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's and it's it's a con constantly sort of evolving. You know, something that might work for you when you're twenty from twenty three. You know, is is not going to you know a couple of years later. Or when you get into yeah, when you get into your into your thirties, then you know you're uh, you know that's you've got to got to change that, haven't you? And it wouldn't work for you because whatever physically you're, you're not that not the same person. And uh, 
yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I, I joke to uh, to Nicole, but you know, I'm like, I'm not saying that I can do these things, but look, learn from my mistakes, if anything. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, there's so like so so much and so many ridiculous situations that when you look back on, you would you probably do it differently. But yeah, there's, there's certainly lots to learn. It's and there's definitely a middle, bro. You go, Chris. Oh no, I was just gonna say it's it's don't don't you guys find it hard being a coach and then assessing what you knew when you were playing like I I, I find you know when I look back on myself I knew, I knew nothing you know like you just kind of <laughs> no, get you really yeah. knew nothing you knew nothing about what why you know even why why was I okay at squash and stuff and you're looking back and you're like shit if I knew just a little bit of what I know now when I was actually out there playing um it would have gone a long way but yeah I mean that's I guess that's part of uh part of going through it it goes back to that whole yeah. thing youth is wasted on the young crisp yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah classic yeah. i knew absolutely nothing like i was no. i had a scooby-doo and there's definitely there's a middle ground because you you obviously benefited from the influence of rob and i was part of a national program where there was a lot of guidance um so you, you don't want to be too far on either end where you're all you're doing it all on your own but you also don't want to be just told what to do every day and you're not thinking for yourself so I think if you can find no. that balance where you're getting guidance and advice and you've got people that you can lean on and learn from, but you're also retaining that sort of independent thought and critical thinking and you're, you're always analyzing your performances and your training and like, right, okay, what did I do last month leading up to this event and why might that have helped? So, yeah. Um, and, you know, so I guess I was, I think I said to buy my first few years were wasted really. I, you know, in terms of, I guess I look back and I, I didn't win a tournament for maybe seven years, I think, my first my first half of the career. But obviously, I, I, don't, I guess I had to go through that period. And I think what what's what's a bit, what I see in, other, in some other players, which is pretty sad really, is that a lot of players probably don't play as long as I did and don't get to, they don't go through that. Tra- like if I'd have stopped in 2012, I would never have won a like, PSA tournament. And I'd probably, you know, I wouldn't really have any anything to look back on with, you know, that I consider an achievement to be honest, but having like sort of pushed through that period to you know and still playing in your late twenties and and actually getting to like twenty seven, twenty eight and being and then thinking like like you know this is this is it now if I don't if I don't do something this season or next season then you know I've got, it's just not worth the, the sacrifices and the, you know everything I'm doing. So I I feel like that was that was that's something in a way I'm quite proud to look back on. I did like I did sort of keep pursuing it and. Uh, even when my bank balance was probably telling me I shouldn't, and uh, my, yeah, probably a lot of other people are like, "What's he doing? Why is he still playing?" But yeah, if I if I hadn't done that, then then yeah, so a lot of that, a lot of my things I look back on now as achievements uh, come I came in when I was at like twenty eight to thirty two almost. So that was uh, it's quite yeah, quite pleasing to go through that period. Strange, I, I feel the same way actually. Um, there's not a lot of my career that I'm proud of, but the fact that I managed to still play for my country. 33 when I stopped and played the Commonwealth Games that year and I, like you say you look at a lot of people that you feel like they've still got a lot more to give and they're capable of achieving more and yeah one of the, one of the few things I'm proud of is the fact that I finished on my terms when I felt like I'd reached the end I wasn't going to probably make much more progress and you've obviously managed to play even longer than me and Arthur I think similar as well both sort of mid-30s by the time you hung up your rackets. Yeah. yeah, still love it as well. Still love playing. Any opportunity yeah. to get to compete is great. 
that's yeah. where I differ. <laughs> <laughs> well, your your running's incredible, Stuart. I yeah, I think I must have listened to one of the pods earlier. Or I know Chris Trussell was very into it as well. I'm early in lockdown, but I was doing quite a bit of running as well. And yeah, I saw some of your times, and that was that's unbelievable. So. I, I was curious with uh, I think it was Johnny Harford had run a sub three hour yeah. marathon, yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, I've I've done a sub three hour. I wonder if he's better than me or if like and you I just pissed him in a couple of minutes in it. Is it? I don't actually know. Yeah, time yours was, was yours was quick. Uh, I can't remember exactly, but yours was a bit quicker. Okay. Yeah. So that's a great effort. Yeah, I tried. I tried. I dabbled with with running. I started Axwell. As I mentioned at the start, I had a few back issues and. And lockdown, obviously, I wasn't coaching, so I started running and got. I mean, I'm not a great runner, I never have been, but um, I started off doing some 5Ks. And uh, first one was sort of over 21 minutes, and I was like horrified. I think my best time ever was about nine, just over 19, so I was like, oh, I'm way off. And the next day, I could barely walk, my back was terrible, but I just sort of pushed, pursued really and just kept, kept chipping away at it. And uh, one of my, like, well, my biggest lockdown achievement was like, I did a half marathon on the track on my own. <laughs> which I did about 10 k's 10 5 k's leading up to it and then what uh then I ran for an hour and then the next uh, next time I was like right I'm gonna do a half marathon so uh there was the, the splits were horrific but I think I did the first half in about 43 minutes and I, fi- I finished it in the second half it took an hour so I completely uh fell off a cliff but that, that was a big big achievement really getting that half marathon done especially that's, on the track <laughs> I think the most I've ever done on the track is 10 miles so that's that's good going yeah, so I had some podcasts in. I had some. Po- I had several podcasts in for sure. That was the only way I could have done it. Oh, 50, 52 and a half laps, I think, right? From memory? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was, it was, it was brutal. I was all over the place at the end. I had no idea what was going on. I, lost it. I had my car key in my pocket, I think, and it fell out. So I was like, I, was, I ended up doing another three laps just trying to find the car key. <laughs> <laughs> only Should 51 laps to go. I'm just thinking, like, one lap. 51 and a half to go. <laughs> yeah, you can't think like that also. just just can't oh, no, I think by the I'm... end it was like it was embarrassing it was pretty much walking pace it was you know, I don't know what it must have looked like it must have looked ridiculous but you still did it though man it's pretty amazing yeah no I was, I was pleased with that because I've never done never done anything like that before so it was it was not, I actually ended up getting my run, running back to uh, to as good as it ever was really so it was, I was quite pleased with that Excellent. you eventually break 19 minutes then uh, I did, yeah, I got down to, uh, well, I got down to thing about 19, 1902 or something like that. It was, yeah, I got, I did, I did it, I did it quicker than I've done it. I looked on my, uh, on my map, my, my run or whatever from I think 2012, 2013, that sort of squash peak. And I was, I was around about 19, my part run time was about 1910 there, I think. So yeah, I shaved a couple of seconds off it just about. Nice. Go on. Um, I was doing a good job. <laughs> I, say, I thought I was doing a good job running in quarantine, and then Stuart said it doesn't count unless you do five miles. So I never, I never actually ran, according to Stu. <laughs> <laughs> you were close. You, you, you did a few good warm ups. <laughs> yeah, you, you, a few good warm ups for sure. Yeah. Stuart, do you want to take away the L short fire? Yes, so we're going to steal your feature, Jamie. I know you do a quick fire 11. We're going to call ours a short fire 11, just to make okay. sure we don't get Mine are never quick, actually, but yeah. Yeah, but we just don't want to risk being sued for copyright infringement. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, your legal, team, legal team onto it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, we've got a, a mix of squash and non-squash questions. We'll just 
go through it. Feel free to elaborate and like no time pressure. Like you say, you, on your show, it's really quick and we're happy for you to give some detail. Yeah. But first up, favourite tournament you've ever played? Uh, wow, tough one. Um, it can be based on performance or location or organisation or billet, whatever you want. One of the nicest tournaments I played, which wasn't hugely successful, but it was in uh, Argentina. Uh, it was only ever on one once, I think. Um, but it was uh, it was a, a polo club, and uh, I just went for that one tournament in near Buenos Aires and just in the outskirts. And yeah, I think I I, were, I lost in the quarterfinals to Miguel Rodriguez. Um, so it was a you know, pretty tough draw there. But uh, but yeah, we just got we got looked after incredibly well and. Um, the setting for the for the tournament was just fantastic, I and mean, we had every night we were treated to uh, meals in the restaurant, which was which was lovely. So uh, yeah, that's that's a bit of an obscure one. Didn't I say didn't go super well for me, but it was it was a one-off tournament that never happened again. So that was uh, yeah, that was a bit of a bit of a left field one. But oh yeah, I'll go with that one. The Tour Two Gas Open, I think it was. Good memory. Um, I think I might know the answer to this one because I think one of your guests has discussed it on one of your episodes, but least favourite tournament. I'm going to take a guess that it might be somewhere in Africa. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't actually go to that one. Oh, did you not? No. If, you, if, you, if we're talking about Lagos, I, yeah, uh, I was... didn't get, no, I didn't go to that. I, I heard old stories from, from Trustwell and, uh, and Sean LaRue and Robbie Temple, I think those guys all went, but um and, and funny enough, we were talking earlier about um, going back to bad tournaments, and that, that was one where Trussell, he, he went the first year, and he, he, the tournament was horrendous, but he won his first round and got through, and it was like quite a big big event at the time. And anyway, next thing, he finds himself, he's like saying, I'm never going to go back. A year later, obviously, he gets top eight, so he decides to go back again. <laughs> but um, my, my worst tournament, um, I mean, I've had, I've had quite a few. Um, I don't want to be too harsh to the places, but it was more about where my headspace was at at the time. But I played played one in Australia, the only time I ever went there five years ago. And I had a great period, well, I thought it was a really good period of training leading up to this. And uh, it was, felt really good, like, as if I'd like, left, left no stone unturned. And uh, and I got out there, and I, I don't know, I just it was winter, and it was the, the courts were brutal, and it was cold, and I just said, couldn't seem to move or see the ball. But uh, I played one on the outskirts of Melbourne there. And it was, it was. I think, as I say, it was more about where I was at. I was in my mid, approaching mid thirties, and I was. I think I shared a bunk bed with Joel Macon, who actually had a worse tournament than me there. But um, yeah, you could probably work it out if you if you look into it. But um, yeah, it was. It was just about. I was in a bad headspace there, so it was, that was probably my lowest lowest ebb on tour. I wouldn't say I don't want to be too harsh to the actual tournament, but yeah, out in Australia, twenty fifteen. Fair enough. Most memorable match? Wow. That's a big one. Um, Probably a league match for 50 quid back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) I remember us playing Stu at the the Edinburgh. Edinburgh, uh, I don't know. I think it was at the Edinburgh. It was the the squash. um, Yeah, I I don't know if that counts as an official match because it's a bit like counting a match at Junkies. Like, they, yeah, they, yeah, they, true, yeah. Real matches. Um, I mean, I, I'm amazed I can still remember that one. Yeah, I remember you. I think you won three uh, <laughs> one. Yeah, I, I, I don't yeah. even know if it was best of five, Jamie. I think it might have been two one. 
Could have been two one, yeah, I'll take that. That's in which case you, you definitely don't count it unless you're playing in the World Tour finals and that was not the World Tour finals. <laughs> <laughs> um I mean one one that was probably I feel like on paper I guess I'd have to say it was one of the best I've ever played. But uh, I lost three two to James Wilshop in the World Open in twenty sixteen. And I guess it was a, it was a no pressure on me and I I played yeah, I just I just went in there with a really good mindset of like this is you know, it could work. My last thing, I guess if it was my last word open, but um, yeah, it, it was in Egypt and I was playing quite well at the time. I liked the courts, I'd, I'd won, I got through uh, the qualification, and uh, and yeah, I, I played James and uh, and ended up in uh, sort of in a battle with him really at two all. And and he he played well, like really used the experience and uh, and closed it out. It was, it was relatively cut, I think it was like 11 6 in the fifth. But uh, but it was it was an over an hour match and uh, you know just to be playing at that sort of level really at the time was uh, and that was yeah that was four years ago so that was that was a really really good match and obviously you know if I'd have, if I'd have won that match and without without a shadow of a doubt it would have been the best of course the best like win of my career and stuff so that was that was a memorable one that didn't quite go my way but it was uh, it was great to you know growing up with James I think I mentioned it in a post eight a while ago but. He was as a junior. We're the same age, and he was always like head and shoulders, you know, above. And I, I played him in like when we were ten years old, probably, and maybe got a couple of points. So you know, with what he did in his career, to then you know to find myself like going on at, at two all with him, and really like having him quite worried uh, was that was yeah it was quite a, another sort of proud moment I suppose in the, in my career. Do you remember what you were thinking between the fourth and fifth? Were you thinking like I can win this, or were you thinking I can't believe I'm too old with James Wilstrop here? It was it was a bit of both, yeah, definitely both would have gone through my mind, yeah, because I could tell out, you know, had him had him a bit rattled, and clearly, I mean, he would have probably like without, you know, he's not the sort of guy to just be blasé, but he, you know, we've all been there where you think you you think you're ready for a match, but you probably underestimate it a little bit, and I obviously it was it was a case of me playing my best squash and having you know just being totally relaxed and everything going in. Um, working and him, him having a, probably one of the worst days he's ever had. But, uh, yeah. now, if but, we ever get him on, we'll ask him for his least memorable match. Yeah, I bet he can't remember that. It's not, it's not really like me remembering our, our battle uh, in 2008. Um, yeah, that that uh, that does that sticks out. Um, best win would probably be, or another memorable one would be when I won my first tournament because that was a brutal match uh, in Paraguay. So it was the final of, and I've been to like four finals before that, I think, or five maybe. And so it was, it was, yeah, it was getting pretty, pretty tough losing the finals and thinking, am I ever going to get a title here? But I played a guy called Robertino Pizzotta and uh, found myself at like 2-1 down and then ended up winning uh, 3-2 in like an hour and 40 plus minutes. Uh, and it was like super hot, humid conditions. And I was really pleased with the way I like battled through to to win that because uh, yeah he he was a good player at the time he was he was on some really good results and uh, and yeah obviously capping it with uh, it being my first title was that was uh, a really satisfying one to look back on there. Yeah, that's that's a good win against him in South America because he's got a really yeah. good record down there. Class yeah, player. Yeah. Um, most influential person in your career. Yeah, I think I've got to go with Rob, really, because he, uh, as I say, I, sort of, I was at that period where I was around for seven years where I was around 100 in the world and was, you know, just had been there for a while. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, meeting him and uh, and his the impacts that, that he had, like, you know, it can't be a coincidence, really, that within two or three years of, of working with him, I was uh, 
having you know much better results, beating even beating players above top fifty, but you know got up to that to that ranking. So yeah, I got to say, Rob, really, my, my my brother's been he's been a huge he was a huge influence on on my squash in general. With growing up and without him, I probably wouldn't even be playing squash. So he uh, he's a squash coach out in in Amsterdam, um, and he, yeah, he's he was great for me growing up, and just, you know really kept that like love of the game because I, when I was as a teenager I had periods where I didn't really enjoy playing too much um so yeah just going over to see him always like rejuvenated me and uh and yeah he's he was supportive in my in my first in my early years as well he he definitely helped me out with some uh with, like flights to a couple of tournaments and stuff like that so yeah my brother Jason Morris bit of a shout out there he's uh he's he was really uh yeah um inspirational in the, in the early years as well Okay, so you, you may have actually answered the next two, but number five, <laughs> favourite player to watch? Uh, to watch? Current or? Uh, anyone. I was thinking it might have been James, but maybe not. Um, I, I, I do love watching James, especially these, you know, seeing him still playing now. I, can, I think as an older player, you can really learn from how, you know, how to maximise your, uh, your ball control and, and skills. But um I, I mean, I love watching Gawad of the current players. He's, he's, if he's playing, I'll always make an effort to um, to, to watch. I, I yeah, just love his, his style of play. Um, growing up, another person who was pretty you know, inspirational was a guy called Billy Hadrill, who uh, was a, a wild character. But he, uh, if anyone's ever seen him play or heard of him, he was unbelievable. He was him and he played a bit of a sort of John White style game where he was, a, he was big. He was, him and John were the same age, and they played together a lot he was a big guy a bit like Pilly as well um and just you know, as a 16 year old he he was um he spent he was in Holland so I used to go over there with us to see my brother and uh you know he, he was great he actually got on court with him a lot but I remember seeing him and John White play like exhibitions and stuff and the way he hit the ball and his his, his talent was just unbelievable so he was yeah as a youngster he was amazing to watch as well. I played him once in a league match in Australia, 2005, I think, like three wow. years after he'd, I think he stopped at least three years before I played him, so, and he wasn't someone that kept playing very much, but yeah, I know him well. Um, final squash one, proudest achievement? Uh, wow. Um, so that's a, another, that's a tough one, because uh yeah, getting getting to well, it's fifty exactly. So just scraped into the top fifty. But um, I guess that's uh, that's yeah. Looking back to when I was, uh, I'd say a teenager, seventeen, eighteen years old, I probably didn't think that I would I would get to that ranking. Uh, and I think, and also I think the depth of the tour like got tougher as well as, as the you know, from compared to when I was eighteen to when I was twenty eight or twenty nine, whenever I got there. So I guess again to, to, to the top fifty, but. I also feel like you know there was there were there were opportunities there to for me to get higher like you know, literally you know matches I can remember where I had had opportunities match balls and things and if I'd have won that I would have definitely got to a higher ranking and I feel like I did beat some uh, some players better than that but um, I think just from the consistency of, of getting that you know getting that ranking the reason you play all the tournaments uh, probably got to got to go with that really you know just getting into that top fifty it's you know use it for my visa application now and <laughs> it's quite useful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They always say rankings don't lie, so yeah, it's definitely an achievement. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, moving on to non-squash. So I know you're a big sports fan, but if you could attend one sporting event, what would it be? 
Wow. Um, I heard your, uh, you talking about topical, but talking about your uh, first sporting memories, but um, you were talking about Argentina and playing England and Maradona. So, uh, I mean, if England were to get to a World Cup final, then I would, uh, yeah, I would, I would want to be, I would want to be there to, to watch that. Um, Euro '96 is one of my bit, like uh, real happy periods looking back as a team. So when England were doing quite well there, that was uh, the atmosphere there was was unbelievable. So um, I've lost touch a little bit with football, but I think if you know if, if England were to get to a final, then that would be. Yeah, that'd be right up there. The other thing, the other would be tennis, probably. I follow the tennis tour fairly closely, and uh, I've never actually never been to Wimbledon, but yeah, to go to a Wimbledon final um, would, be, would be pretty awesome as well, I think. Okay, this one might take a bit of thought, but perfect meal. So we're looking for food, drink, location, and guests. Oh, wow. That's a perfect meal. Um, I live just outside New York but I, I absolutely love any chance to get to to a rooftop in New York so I'd, I'd probably say location yeah a, a swanky rooftop in New York um guests how many guests have I got as many as you want I mean I, I would probably pick no one these these boys might pick some company that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite fair I've got, actually got a friend who uh he likes to do that. Likes to go. Likes to go for for sort of slap up meals uh, on his own when he gets the opportunity, <laughs> which uh, I always find quite entertaining. Um, well, I've got to be careful here. I say here, but um, I'd, yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to have Nicole there. Nicole Bunyan. She uh, yeah. She she'd be the, she'd be present. Um, and definitely Rob Rob Owen because he's uh, just for the you know for his his wine knowledge. Um, yeah, Rob Rob would definitely be there. Um, someone I played probably the most tournaments with Peter Creed, one of my best mates, Peter Creed, um, and and Trustwell as well. Because then I'd be a pretty. I mean, that's actually quite realistic. Like that could happen quite easily. So uh, yeah, I'll go with go with those guys. Yeah, Happy and there's food and the drink. Rob's in charge of picking picking the wine. I'm guessing wine. I'll go from um, Montrachet, white wine that uh, Rob's introduced me to. That's uh, Usually, it'd be fairly pricey in New York on a rooftop, but um, hopefully, Rob's paying. Um, <laughs> uh, if, if he's there and he's had a good day on the horses that day, then it's fine. Yeah, well, either way, either way, that wouldn't affect it. But um, <laughs> uh, in terms of, I don't know, maybe a good, a good steak. I think good, yeah, an Argentinian steak, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, beauty. To, to celebrate your memories of that tournament down in Buenos Aires. Yeah, well, the South America trip. Yeah, well. Yeah, back-to-back titles, which after seven years was quite nice. <laughs> um, okay, next one. What's better about the UK versus US? What's better about the UK? Yeah, what do you miss about the UK? Pubs. Uh, yeah. Without doubt, pubs. Um, the Saturday afternoon, the football. I mean, not not huge. Um, Wolves is my, like I guess, my club. They're my local club, and they're doing really well now, but... I'm not. Uh, I don't follow them that closely, but yeah, definitely uh, pub culture, gigs, music. Going to uh, when I lived in London, I um, and that was something I did a lot on tour as well. I'd always try to look wherever I was going. I in advance to try and look up and see who who was playing, what bands were playing, if there's anyone that I knew or liked, and uh, always trying to combine that in with um, with a tournament, if or training pit, whatever. If I felt it was possible, I had quite a few in Toronto with uh, Mike McHugh, who Chris will know pretty well. Um, so yeah, 
yeah, definitely pub pub culture and uh, and music as well. Okay, and then the reverse. Would you prefer about the US versus the UK? I mean, personally, my my lifestyle is is a lot more um, sustainable. Earning <laughs> potential, here. I think, is the Earning best way to summarise it. Lifestyle is more sustainable. Um, Swanky rooftops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that hasn't happened anywhere near enough as I'd have planned. Yeah, you know, two years ago coming over, I uh, that was I was planning on being there most weekends, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not happened as much. But hopefully, that'll uh, next year that'll open up a bit more. Um, yeah, so I mean, the life's the way I, where I am in Stamford, Connecticut, and working in Greenwich. It's uh, it's you know, it's beautiful around here. It's um, there's, there's some really, without without going too far. There's lots of nice countryside, and I live pretty close to the water so the you know the, the lifestyle is is good and it's um it, when I was living in London it was very hectic you know getting the tube around cycling from club to club to coach and stuff like that whereas you know, here we've got a beautiful club that we, that we work at really get on well with the guys at Phil Barker and Paul Carnero that I work with um and everything's close you know it's a, it's a 10 minute drive or I cycle quite a bit in the summer so uh, yeah, just the, the standard living is really good over here, and the, the summers are great. I, I seem to enjoy, I think, the hot weather more than most people. Just I guess coming from England, you probably really appreciate it the first couple of years. But uh, yeah, I absolutely couldn't believe it. The first summer, I like, had shorts on for sort of six months, which was uh, just unheard of in England. So yeah, that's the whole package is uh, it's 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 good. I'm glad glad to uh, glad to be here. Okay, and final one. Now that you're officially retired, is there anything you want to achieve in the next five years? I want to. Uh, I want to get get into the hardball doubles. I've played a little bit, and um, when I well last season it hasn't really been season this year, so I'd like to like to get into the hardball doubles. Um, but I've also, you know, like like we mentioned earlier, you know, get really starting to. Uh, I haven't been here for just over a year now. Getting, um, you know, I've got some some juniors that are actually coming to coming specifically to see me now, um, and you know, a couple with some with some pretty good potential. So, uh, so yeah, just yeah, if I could get them, you know, help improve their game and uh, and have have a you know impact on some some younger players, that would uh, yeah, that be that be something that I'd uh, definitely consider uh, an achievement over the next few years. Great, days. I have to get some. Some singles and some doubles and uh, patio beer in when things open up, Jamie. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We've uh, we've not 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 uh, played each other, but we've certainly been at some some of the same events, haven't we? So, yeah, we'll, uh, and sometime soon, hopefully. Create a create a couple memories that we can uh, share on the podcast if they're if they're PG enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's always some. Yeah, we can edit edit people's names. <laughs> <laughs> all right well jamie thanks a million for coming on really yeah. appreciate the time as uh yeah happy days thanks guys thanks for yeah. having me yeah and uh good luck with the, with the next guests legends right. yeah keep it up it's been a lot of fun cheers guys cheers man take it cheers. easy cheers